Hello and welcome to this live chat episode of Fractopia. Today we're visiting with several writers from the original book, Ubiquitous City, Tales of the Fractopian Future. I'm pleased to introduce Anthony Copeland, Adrian McCauley, and Sean Koch. And these gentlemen are also participating in the second Ubiquitous City book, which is currently in development. And along the way we'll have a discussion touching on why Fractopia, what is Fractopian fiction, and just what it is that we hope to accomplish with this growing body of work. So maybe I can put you all on the spot just a little bit. I'll introduce you, and you can tell us all a little bit about yourself and what you've written in the Fractopian subgenre. I'm going to start with Anthony Copeland. <laughs> Okay, well, um, I'd been working on my own story called Hermes925 when um, Todd approached me and asked me to help with the Ubiquity project, which was fun. Um, similar kind of idea, Fractopian universe. Um, I didn't know it was called Fractopia until Todd told me that's what it was, though. <laughs> um, and now I've even got a, um, a roleplay gaming group on Facebook called the Enveron Project based on my Hermes925 story where people can play a character in um, my version of a Fractopian universe, which is pretty fun. How long has that been going on? Um, just a couple of months now. Um, I introduced the idea, um, after we talked about possibly making it a ubiquity roleplay group, I uh, went ahead and tried it with my own storyline, just to see if it would work. And how's it going? It's fairly popular so far. Um... I've got about six or seven active players at the moment, but uh, there are people who are just watching too, lurking in the group and following the story. Yeah, I'm lurking myself. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in how that works out, and uh, we've had one conversation about that. Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting example of what I'd call a literary role play. I mean, people use the word role play in a lot of different ways, but, yes. but sometimes what they mean is this shared online written experience that it, it happens on goodreads it happens on facebook it happens on google plus it's a neat low maintenance way to run a large-scale role-playing campaign without all the crunchy rules etc mm -hmm. but i wanted to ask you about that from a game master's perspective like what do you do differently when running that let's say that conversation that literary conversation how do you uh, I'm going to say game master that. Uh, what do you do about retcon and about tying loose ends? And uh, Do you try to keep groups together? Uh, how does it work? It can be a bit tricky because different types of players will often want to do, go off and do their own thing. I try to have them at least meet each other um, so they have the option of teaming up or becoming enemies. Um, but like, like I said, it's more like a narrative. It's more like... Um, an interactive story. Um, the party doesn't stay together. They go off and do their own thing, and the uh, narrative switches from group to group as uh, as the story goes. And, and is that harder than you thought it would be, or is it easier than you thought it would be? Well, I've already been running a fantasy group the same way for the past seven years, so I'm kind of in, into it now. Um, making it a sci-fi Fractopian setting was... Uh, a little different because there are certain rules that you have to 
um, stick to. They're, uh, the world has limits. Whilst in a pure fantasy setting where you're making up the setting as you go, um, if the if the characters throw you a curveball, you can pretty much run with it because it's a fantasy setting. You can just make up what's happening. But yeah, we've got um, a few more limitations with the with the technology and sci-fi explanation. That's what I'm trying to wrap my head around when it comes to running a ubiquity type setting in that format, because of course ubiquity has a fairly firm setting. It has a setting bible, in fact. Mm -hmm. And the idea of people running off in random directions is a little bit disconcerting to me. <laughs> but you have the map all figured out. True that, true that. Although I found that uh, when I ran the... I produced a LARP called Ghosts in the Machine in 1992. And I had a group of actors and role players together. And we had rehearsed over a period of six months. Everybody knew the main beats in the storyline. Uh, but it turned out that in the live chaos that ensues once you open it up to the public that even the actors who were well versed and had read the story bible for six months started coming up with things completely off the top of their head uh, sometimes it was rather dangerous to the story structure and yeah have, have you had to do any retcon um retcon in in which in uh, what do you mean in the uh, in this context well, in your online science fiction literary role play, has there ever been a situation where someone came up with something that just didn't really fit or introduced something so weird you had to go back and change something? That actually is part of the reason why I'm doing it. Um, the story Hermes 925 has kind of hit a wall and um, allowing me to role play this with a group of people I respect Let's me explore the world a little bit more and maybe find a way to break through that wall and continue the story. So it feeds into your research. This absolutely feeds into my research, exactly. And uh, also helps me see a little bit more of what an audience wants from a sci-fi Fractopian novel. That's absolutely fascinating, and I hope that we can find more time to talk about that further on. I'm going to shift the spotlight over to Adrian McCauley now. Uh, Adrian, are you with us? Good morning. Yes, sorry, I uh, muted my microphone there. No worries, no worries. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners a little about who you are and what you've done in the Fractopian genre. Uh, what brings you here? Uh, what brings... Well, my name is Adrian McCauley. I'm from New Zealand, which is definitely not a part of Australia and clearly should be on every world map, but for some reason we are not. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Look it up. Anywho, um, I met Todd by chance in a Facebook group, um, about writing and I was writing fantasy at the time, just exploring some concepts. Um, and Todd approached me with the ubiquity project and I had never, to be honest, never even heard of ubiquitous computing in that terminology at the time. Um, and I jumped into the project pretty much blind, um, just based on what Todd had told me. And it sounded fascinating. And the more research I did, uh, the more I realized that this was definitely something that I would be quite interested in. Um, what was I saying? Sorry, it's still pretty early. What was the question? Well, just just for starters, uh, you know, what what are your interests in in working in the Fractopian genre, and uh, and, and what draws you here? Well, I've always loved 
cyberpunk, and clearly this is an offshoot of cyberpunk. The difference being cyberpunk is based in a dystopian world, and that is not a reality. The Fractopian fiction world uh, intrigues me because that's what we live in now. The, the story concepts are just um, expanding on that idea and looking at where we will be in the future, as opposed to imagining what you would consider a sci-fi future. We're imagining a real future where this world is actually going to go. We're, we're not putting in fantastic exoskeletons with rocket launchers. We're not putting in cyborgs because they're cool. It's just looking at the way technology is going to realistically change the face of the planet. And we live at a time where we're already watching that happen. So Fractopian fiction uh, appeals to me because I love to imagine, I love to think of the what-ifs of everything. And it's an incredibly relevant subgenre at the moment. I haven't seen any other stories out there that focus so heavily on ubiquitous computing as the driving force for everything. You, you see bits and pieces of that tech in stories, but people are still flicking switches and turning dials and pushing buttons and we are already in a society where that is disappearing. Everything is becoming uh, voice activated and um, smart screen technology. Everything that isn't on a screen is becoming outdated very quickly. So, Not to mention wireless. Uh, when you look at the first wave of cyberpunk, there's wires everywhere. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful wires everywhere. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything was analog. That was the interesting thing about cyberpunk, is that it's an analog tech future. And yeah, Fractopian fiction is, as you say, a wireless... Um, it's all about virtual interfacing. We're not going to be physically interfacing with things in the future. I mean, a lot of stuff already we don't physically interface with anymore. Just ask Siri. True. So it's, it's an incredibly relevant genre. You know, it's interesting that you use the word analog when referring to uh, the first wave of cyberpunk. I, I don't think the word analog would have come to my mind, but I think it's a fitting word, especially when you consider that the, the grandfather of cyberpunk, William Gibson, uh, was actually trained as a biologist, and he came to his theories more from an organic chemistry point of view, biological point of view, and then extrapolated those into cybernetic metaphors. I'm ashamed to admit I've never actually read any of Gibson. <laughs> oh, we're going to cut that out. <laughs> uh, Gibson's work is really amazing. Uh, he, he is uh, my favorite of the quote-unquote cyberpunk writers, although even, even Gibson says that cyberpunk is dead at this point in time. But when I read cyberpunk, uh, the classic cyberpunk stories, I feel very, very much like I am, I am in a genre. I, I am not looking at a real world. Exactly. Uh, Philip K. Dick does that for me. It's, the elements are all there, but it's, it's science fantasy now. We're looking back at it, and it's science fantasy. It's no longer science fiction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sean, are you ready? I don't know if ready something that ever truly comes. <laughs> you just do it. All right. The next, the next writer on the panel is Sean Koch, and he has, uh, Sean and I have, have participated in a number of writing projects, but uh, when it comes to Ubiquicity, uh, he was one of the first people to come on board. 
What is it about Fractopian fiction that, that gets you excited and makes you want to do it, Sean? Well, I like stories. First and foremost, I like telling stories. Uh, so it doesn't matter what setting it is that brings me in. But I'm, at heart, I'm a transhumanist. I believe that we have to reach the next step and that everybody's afraid to take that branch out. And for me, writing these stories is about trying to get people to understand the benefits of moving on to the next step of post-human life. A transhumanist. That can mean a lot of different things. Some of them uh, perhaps a bit crazy. I remember meeting Max Moore and the Extropians uh, way back in the 90s when they were talking about uploading ourselves uh, to digital servers. Uh, we didn't have cloud technology yet, but the idea would be that we could liberate ourselves completely from the human body. Uh, of course, in the Fractopia stories, we don't go quite that far. Um, so taking sort of a half step in that direction, uh, how do you see the word uh, transhuman uh, in the context of a Fractopian world? Well, for me, it's about control and, and perseverance. It's sustainability. We are, uh, Elon Musk had a quote uh, the other day that we are the wardens to guard life, that life itself were to continue on no matter what circumstances came to the planet, came to the universe, that we were the ones to continue that life on. We had the burden not only to us, but to all life on the planet, to make sure that it survives into the next steps. And when you use the word life there, uh, would, would Musk's definition include artificial intelligence? Well, first, it's a form of life. It's, I mean, mainly it's about the balance. People are always afraid of the balance, that AI will come in and disrupt everything and take over and change the future. But really, it's about sustainability and making sure that all the different parties are able to continue onwards. This, uh, this transhumanist theme also bleeds over into the cyberpunk genre when it comes to uh, augmenting the human body. And I know this is something that you've done with uh, characters in, in both of the stories that you've written so far. Uh, the idea of, of technology as an extension of the body. I think it was Marshall McLuhan who said that all of our technology is basically an extension of the human body. You know, the, the car is an extension of your legs, and the television is an extension of your eyes and ears, etc. Yes, and I, and I believe it, part of it is about hum, humans will at some point be able to rewrite their bodies from the ground up. I mean, that's really projected a lot farther than the storylines we're writing. But... I believe that that complete and utter control will give us the keys to the next thing that comes after. And I, for me, okay, so I'm a big fan of Daniel Quinn, who does a lot of writing about anthropology and human behavior and civilization building. And one of the things that's prevalent and comes up again and again in his writing is that all the story leads up to us. There's you know, creation of the universe, there's God makes the earth and the heavens, and then people, and then it stops, and that's Guys. where the story stops. 
or if you look at it from a scientific point of view, all this evolution, thousands, millions and millions of years of different animals turning into different animals, and then it stops. And here it is, we're at the top of the heap, you don't have to evolve anymore, you don't have to do anything, we're just going to stay right here. And part of the whole conservative mindset is, we're just going to hold the fort, and nothing should ever change, and there should never be any more adaptations, and this is the final end. All the story was leading up to this, and that's it, game over. That does seem to be the standard view, as though human beings are the apex of evolution, and, and now it's over. But the reality is, on an extended timeline, a million years from us, what came oh. after us, and how do we transition into that thing, not to stop being what we are now, but to ensure that we do not perish at the hands of an ever-changing chaos. I like transhumanism. It's very cool. This is one of the things that, that really drove the creation of the first Ubiquicity book and, and the questions that led me to contact you all and, and as well as the other writers. Uh, it seems to me to be fairly easy. It's almost a punt, literally speaking, to imagine some far-flung future universe in which everything is vastly different. What is quite a bit more difficult is to imagine the baby steps it takes to get there, the transitional period from here to there, uh, which is something that, of course, uh, the Fractopian genre tries to focus on, a very near future moving in the directions which you're indicating. So... I was just thinking about the earliest influences for me of science fiction. Um, one of a book I bought in my early teens that I still have on my bookshelf is uh, Diaspora by Greg Egan. And that was my first introduction to transhumanism. And I've read that book so many times. And it. It was also my introduction to hard science fiction. It has a glossary at the back of it because there are so many technical terms. There are so many uh, theories introduced in there within the context of the story. And even to this day, it's a mind-blowing book to read. And that book to me is on a pedestal for what science fiction can and should be. What was that one called again, Adrian? Uh, Diaspora. Greg Egan. Uh, let's see if I can find the book cover. Alright, there we go. Nice. By, by the end of the 30th century, humanity has the capability to travel the universe, to journey beyond Earth and beyond the confines of the vulnerable human frame. Uh, blah, blah, blah. The story of Yatima, a polis being created from random mutations of the Kenoshi polis based mind seed and of humankind. Of an astrophysical accident that spurs the thousandfold cloning of the polises, of the discovery of an alien race and a kink in time and space that means humanity, whatever form it takes, will never again be threatened by acts of God. It's a deep story. I heard the word God in there. Well, with transhumanism, uh, you ditch all religion because you fully embrace science and reality. I don't believe you can uh, go to Alpha Centauri and still believe in God. <laughs> there would be some people who did. I'm not so sure, actually, that uh, that faith in the supernatural and uh, and faith in science are are necessarily exclusive. Well, they should be. <laughs> That's an argument worth having. I mean, there is there is clearly an epistemological limit uh, 
based on the human brain. And of course, uh, even if you accept Darwinian evolution, uh, Darwinian evolution selects for fitness, right, for survival and breeding, which is not necessarily to say that it selects for uh, a, a clear and real understanding of what reality actually is. In other words, if it's good enough that you can grow to adulthood and breed, then there's no guarantee that what you perceive is necessarily reality. It's just good enough. It may not be the most efficient solution, but it works. Exactly. It's a very pragmatic approach. Um, evolution takes, you know, again, if you accept Darwinian evolution, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a, a view of reality, or certainly B, any idea of, of what's beyond the epistemological limits of that reality. Actually, I'm pretty sure I've read that Darwinian evolution is already becoming a redundant theory with um, all the studies they've been doing on how evolution actually works, that there there is also um, an external environmental aspect that can can fundamentally change the dna within a single generation like precisely epigenetic phenomena your own experiences can change your dna have, have you guys read about the the twins the twin astronauts one was sent into space and one was kept down on earth and yes. the, the one that came back his dna was different yeah he adapted that's that's just you know mind-blowingly awesome yeah yeah then we also have the uh, Lamarckian theory of evolution, which is sort of coming back into, into style with some, some groups of people. And there are people like uh, Rupert Sheldrake with his theory of morphogenetic fields, the idea that there are uh, forms, let's almost platonic forms, right, which uh, life sort of moves toward as though a blueprint exists prior to the evolutionary step that it's taking at the moment. Uh, but again, this all happens beyond the epistemological limits of the human brain. And so there's, there's no way from within the system to prove whether there is or isn't or what may be outside of the system. It could be that evolution is a tool created by God who then lets it run. Who knows? Let's get back to, uh, to fractopian fiction as a genre. Uh, now... For me, you guys have heard me say this several times before, I, I, I really dislike that artificial line that gets drawn between genre and literature. Uh, and one of the things that I stress to, to all the writers who work on the project, so again, you've heard me say this before, is that we're trying very hard to, to reach the human condition, the human element in what just happens to be a science fiction setting. To give you an example, if, if you wrote a, if, if you took a, a story of today, a something, something considered literary, something like David Foster Wallace's work, for instance, and uh, you showed that story to someone who lived in the 1920s, well, you'll find that Wallace's story involves telephones and televisions and maybe email and the internet and credit cards and electronic bank transfers, all of which would have sounded like wild science fiction, right, to a person who lived 100 years ago. They would have a hard time believing that a lot of this stuff could even happen. I mean, you, you wake up and communicate via video with a person who lives thousands of miles away while electronic bank transfers are coming in and you can, 
make money and spend money without ever leaving your office and labor gets done by machines that you control remotely, all of this would have sounded like the wildest science fiction. And yet what Wallace is writing isn't science fiction at all, right? It's about, uh, you know, a torrid love affair or the depression that a person is feeling one day due to their job or their broken relationship or whatever it is. These are, these are human stories that just happen to make use of the technology that exists in the world around them. That's, and that's kind of where I want uh, the fractopian genre to go, right? Because why is there a line between genre and literature? People are still people. What, what do you mean by that? I mean, it doesn't matter what the setting is. People are still people. They're still going to have human interactions with each other. In yeah, one, precisely. In some form or other. It seems to me that in, in, in a really good story, the technology, say two characters have a conversation on the telephone or over the, a video conference, that the technology itself is actually the least interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Anybody want to comment on that? How, where, does that where does that leave us in terms of, uh, are you a genre writer? Are you a literary writer? Does that even mean anything? Um, I, I disagree just a little bit. Um, with technology being the least interesting thing, um, only to the degree that um, my writing is pretty eclectic, and sometimes I like a story where the world is the main character as well. Um, a lot like uh, Lord of the Rings, the world is as much of a character as the people in it. So I think if written well, the technology can be just as interesting as the people, but Again, only if you have people as a vehicle for the technology um, and vice versa for that. I see what you're saying. And there are absolutely stories where the technology or the setting can be treated as a, as a character, as a matter of fact. Uh, one great example that comes to mind was that Harlan Ellison story of I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, right? Where the, I think it's the four last remaining human survivors on the planet Earth are locked inside a great artificially intelligent computer that torments them for its own pleasure and entertainment. So in, in that case, the setting is literally a character. Uh, I think that book was a, um, a psychic vision of the Trump administration, wasn't it? <laughs> well, this is one of the dangers, I think, of the scientific materialist mindset, right? Because if you, if you move into a, uh, uh, a, a phenomenological reality where, where uh, all that exists is matter... There is no soul. There is no free will. Morality is m- merely uh, in- enlightened uh, self-interest and matter of convenience. Um, when you die, nothing else happens. You didn't exist before or after this. This is all there is. It ends up being a sort of a, a, a nihilistic and very depressing universe in which to live. And I think that your comment of the Trump administration, for instance, uh when you see what we'll call fascism from the Mussolinian definition, right? Government and corporations folding together into one power structure, you enter an area where uh, uh, this, this panopticon society strips people of the idea that their free will matters or that there's anything like a soul. What happens to morality then? And what is the human condition except suffering for no particular reason. That's a depressing world to live in. When, when it's all system and no soul. 
That's why you have augmented reality games to distract people from the soul-crushing reality. Ah, yeah, you brought us back to the Fractopian future again. The stick always needs a carrot. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Fractopia. The second half of this live chat is available to our Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash Fractopia. I'm your host, Todd Foley, reminding you to comment, like, subscribe, and share, as feeding those important algorithms will help bring the show to a broader audience of futurists and fictioneers. Sources and links for further reading can be found in the show notes below.